You're listening to a teaching from Sundown Church. We hope you encounter God through our podcast and experience freedom in your life. From week one, the first thing that we recognized about this, about healing is that uh, we have to recognize the, the broken heart, the broken life, the broken identity in ourselves and in others. That, and, we, and we talked a lot about that first week. And again, you can look at the notes. You can go back and listen to that lesson. I'm not going to reteach you tonight. The second week, we talked about it. For, for that brokenness, there has to be, there will be no healing. There will be no restoration. There will be no renewal without an encounter with God. We watched last week in that moment in the shack where Mackenzie first meets Papa, first meets the Holy Spirit, and first meets Jesus. About the, and how strange it was that he didn't have any issue recognizing Papa. He didn't have any, recognize, any issue recognizing Jesus. But he, had, he was totally bewildered by the Holy Spirit. That is where most are when they approach healing. They have an understanding of God. They have an understanding of Jesus, but they have no understanding of the work of the Holy Spirit. And there will be no healing without that encounter. And again, listen to it online. You can get that second part uh, there. The third one, this, this, this week, let me get to where I should be in my notes. As you'll see at the, at the top of this, in, that, uh, in, in the outline number three, it continues, there will be no healing, no restoration, no deliverance, no repentance, no salvation without a drastic correction in who we believe God is. There will be, no, because most of us, let me go ahead and read this. Our misunderstanding and confusion about the Father, along with those to whom we minister, thinking about it in those terms, causes us to have few or very limited expectations of God and makes us and them very doubtful that things will be different this time. By the Spirit in us, we must allow His love and His goodness to become evident to the person with whom we meet. The meetings are truthful, intimate, and very personal. Here you go, Karen. You're welcome. Uh, there's one more, two more, three more. Okay. Almost everyone you minister to, any, even yourself, and, and as, as we consider this personally and also from a ministry position, very few people have a healthy, whole, loving understanding of who the Father is. 
We have been adjusted by disappointment. We've been adjusted by frustration. We have been adjusted by history, by situations that we have personally faced. And most of us have very few expectations that God will do something this time that will be different than last time. Very, very few. So I would, uh, you know, when you're sitting with somebody and, and, and you're, you're sharing something with them, the first way that they're going to begin to learn something different about God is by meeting you. Make sense? If, if, when they don't, if they don't get it from you, when they meet you, if they get judgment, if they get this, why are you here, why are you bothering me, anything, then they will conclude that that's who God is. You are the first face of a difference that they will know about God. They will understand him by the tone of your voice that he's kind. They will understand by the countenance that you carry that he loves them. They will understand by, by, by your appearance, by your presence in the moment, that he, that he listens well. And he's not starting with judgment. And he's not starting with harshness. And he's not starting with criticism. Did he, that, but that has to begin when they first see you. It, for, for those of us who are husbands who have been married any time at all, one of the things that we've heard for many years is, I don't need you to fix my problem. Well, very often it's because we're fixers. It's like, okay, I've, you've given me enough information, now let me get busy. I'll, I'll solve what's going on with your story. But when we begin here, we overcome so much because the Holy Spirit that's prepared us for this, um, for this moment allows us, not because I'm trying, but, but the Holy Spirit that lives in me will rise in me and they will see the face of God. Don't, that, that has to be, because the, they're not staying long. If they don't hear something, if they don't recognize something going on that they've never seen, felt, or heard before, they're not staying very long. So the third point tonight, in this healing journey of McKenzie, first there was a recognition of the, of the brokenness. The second was the beginning of the encounter. The third tonight is that we must basically change our concepts of God. You'll hear a lot of it in this one scene. We're only looking at one four or five minute section tonight, not jumping around, but I'm going to play the whole thing. We're going to back up and then we'll take it step by step. Father, I just pray as we come to this teaching moment that your spirit would just settle over this group. There's a lot here. There's a lot that needs to be taken in and we won't get it if we just come to this with our mind. We won't get it if we just come to this with our heart. You've got things to say to us deep in our spirit. And I pray, Father, that we would listen carefully and that we would just let ourselves be immersed in you, in your spirit tonight so that this truth would just come home to us. There may be some that are sitting here that are broken. Their hearts are broken. And they need to understand this for themselves. They need, they need this, the, the, the teaching. They need the clarity that the Holy Spirit can bring 
in this hour. There are others who will share this with, with those around them. We'll, bring, we'll, we'll be ministering this to others, and I, I thank you, Father, that, that you're making them ready. But I, pray, I just pray, Lord, that the Spirit would bring the relevance and the truth tonight into each story. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the things that I'd, I would ask you to notice, it's not in your notes, but I would ask you to notice that Papa's words seem to be constantly diffusing his arguments. Can you, did you, do you see it? That, that his anger, his frustration will soften and there are tears. I, I want us to notice that because that's what the voice of God will do. Now, I'm supposed to recognize, and, and I'm, I, I don't want to make too big a point of this, but the reality is that when I'm opening my mouth in that office, when I'm sitting across the table from someone, I cannot let my voice be the one that's heard. I cannot let it be me. It has to be him. It has to be the Spirit, because the Spirit can diffuse their hearts and begin, even, the, even in the first moments, even to those who are the most determined to, to those who, you know, think they've already got it figured out, that he will begin even the first words to begin to break down the story and tell them, show them that he's present in the moment. Years ago, I, I'm, uh, David has given me permission to share this, but David, when I started meeting with David, <clears throat> uh, one of the first things he told me is, Randy, I've, I've been through this uh, through therapy several times, I, and he said, I already know the moment when this happened to me. I know when that emotional blow was. And he began to, to share it with me, and I told him, I said, David, you need to go get your money back because there's no way that that's possibly the moment that, that actually broke your heart. And thankfully, David, even having paid the money and, and been to therapy and, and to discover this answer, didn't put his hands over his ears, nor did he close his heart. He was willing for the Holy Spirit to begin to reveal truth to him. And within a couple of weeks, we knew exactly the moment that his heart had been broken. When, when there's openness... And the openness is created by the voice that someone hears. Think about that. The openness in them comes because they hear a voice that sounds a little different. There's a little bit of tenderness in it. There's a little bit of truth. There's a little bit of trust. There's a little bit of hope. And it becomes contagious. That cannot be us. That has to be the Holy Spirit. He has to be the one speaking. Let's look at this, let's look at this, first, this first clip and we'll stop and talk about it. It doesn't seem like there's a whole lot there. But when in, in this encounter, what Papa does is he reminds Mackenzie of how many times in Mackenzie's past the presence of God was apparent. You, you remember who Ma Griff was? She was the one that gave him, that gave him the pie. It says, you remember that smell? 
your mother's perfume? What's, what's Papa doing? One of the things that Kendall shared with me a couple of years ago in doing this same ministry was he was amazed at how many people, once they were delivered, could go back and recollect the times when God was trying to reach them, when God was trying to touch them, was trying to bring goodness to them, and how many times there actually was behind them. What's happening here is that God is reminding us how many times he was present, how many times he was loving us, protecting us, shielding us, bringing us to this moment of healing, that this isn't the first time he's been around. This isn't the first time he's loved you. This isn't the first encounter that y'all have had. He will remind you of many, multiple moments. Something that was as simple as this woman that he knew on the porch, this, the, the smell of his mother's perfume, all bringing him back to the reality that God has been present. In, in my notes, I put the word remember is a powerful word in this ministry. Papa's not trying to get Mac to remember the awfulness of the great sadness, the death of his daughter, but rather the very powerful reality that Papa has been loving us, loving the person sitting in front of us up to this moment of healing for a long time. So what does it correct us? What does it correct about God? Remember, this is what this is about. Do you hear some of that major correction from the comment about Santa Claus? Of course, that's, that's kind of the over-the-top one. But we, this whole section is Mackenzie having to begin to learn who the Father really is. Erasing some of the misunderstandings and having them replaced with truth. So the first thing that we recognize about, about what God wants us to know about Him is that He has been there all along. That's important for us to know. It's important for us to share with someone sitting across who's, who's it, and it's, I can think about so many stories where someone was delivered and sitting there coming into my office a few weeks later and saying, you know, I'd forgotten all about this. But I remember that it was my dad who shielded me. It was my dad who protected me. As angry as I've been at him for all these years, I had no memory of it. It was him that rescued me. It was him that protected me. It was, it was him. You see, they had no recollection of those things until this fog was lifted. The veil was lifted. They could actually see what God wanted them to see. And they could see the difference. How many times back there God was present? So we can, we can share with them as, as, as their mind begins to change, their understanding begins to change, we can tell them that this isn't the first moment that God's loved you. He's loved you from the beginning. His love is not new. It just has brought you to now to this place of healing. Of course, he asked them, am, am I dead? I love that question. Do, do, you, do you feel dead? We'll continue. That has to be made. It's caught in these phrases. As a minister of this truth, as a minister of God's love and deliverance, and it's not mine, it's his ministry, it's not mine, I'm a custodian of it, but it's his. We have to know there cannot be one moment of pressure. 
There cannot, there's, there cannot be a single moment when the moment feels forced. Do you, did you, do you hear it in the comments? Did, did you know I would come? Of course I did. Now, we're talking about a believer here. McKenzie is someone who's already believes. He already knows Jesus is the Savior. He's, his, his mind, his heart's broken. So the Father knew that, that, that he would continue to beckon McKenzie until he came. Of course I knew you would come. Am I, am I free to go? You can walk out that door at any time. I will tell you that has to be without question, what we know right now, but more especially when we're ministering to someone else, they have to know that I am not here to force, I'm not here to pressure, I'm not here to push. That is very much the heart of God. What is most people's thought about God? Because of how we've approached things. They think God's pushy. They think he's aggressive. They think he's not very sensitive. Because, in, in, you know, I can remember, well, I'll, I'll tell this, there's, several, there's so many stories like this, but I, I was talking to Susan Clark one time after they had moved to Lubbock, and she said their phone rang, and the call on the, on the other end was their neighbor saying, hey, there's two people from a church coming, don't answer your door. This warning, there's two people from the church coming, if you, you know, don't open your door. Because what had those two people from the church typically done? They pushed and they pressured and they, and it's like, why don't you? Why won't you? It's like, you know, we, we understand this. And so it's not unusual that someone would believe that God is pushy and that, and that he's going to pressure and that they're going to face that pressure at some point. When I meet with students, I meet with their parents first. If they're, if they're like junior high or high school age, I meet with their parents first because I want, I want their parents to know this is where we're going to take your child. But I want you to know, I want your child to know that in every step of the way, it's their choice for the, what they do. They will not be pressured. They, you know, that, that day won't come. So... What needs to change here with, under, under number B? As believers, especially as believers, God will lovingly but persistently pursue us to this time of healing. Though he will never force us, the invitation to heal and be restored is handed to us as a gift frequently offered. All conversation, our conversation, is that invitation to be discovered, and hope to be experienced. Now, I'm telling you this because I don't want even want you to try it. I don't want you to try to get in an office or get in a conversation across the dinner table and try to let your conversation be this invitation or to create this hope. What's the chances that that will work? It won't. So who has to be speaking? Whose voice has to rise in us? Who has to create the invitation? Who has to build the hope? It has to be the Holy Spirit. I am not capable. I'm not smart enough. I'm not emotionally intuitive enough 
to understand how to do this and make, and make this acceptable to someone, but the Holy Spirit is perfect at it. Papa's response that he is not interested in prisoners, and you can walk out that door right now, is a powerful early lesson we must learn in ministering healing to others. There can never be force or pressure to act. The truth, however, listen to this, the truth, however, may create that pressure at times, but it's not ours to use as a club. Truth revealed sometimes will create pressure. Something that we haven't heard before, something that's being laid out on the table that is, that is about us, that may create this sense of pressure. Truth will do that. But it's, it's the Holy Spirit's to do. He knows the timing. He knows how to use it. Truth is never mine to be used as a club against someone. Especially if I've learned something about someone from somebody else. If they've kind of whispered something to me that I didn't know what they were going to say, I have to be especially careful not to let what I just heard become a club in that situation. So in bold, under B, he is an inviter and a giver of gifts that can be received or rejected. That's a change that, we, that has to occur in how we understand the Father. He invites, he encourages, he offers gifts, but that gift at any point can be accepted or rejected. And I cannot be alarmed if it's rejected. It's only being rejected right now. If I don't push or, or, or create pressure, then, then, then they will be back. Let's go, to the, let's go to the next clip. Any comments about that? We'll, I don't mind slowing down and letting you comment if there's something you'd like to say or a question you'd like to ask. All right, here we go to the next one. Does that, does that phrase resonate with the same power to use it as it does with me? Again, I shared with you last week, and again, I know it's a hard truth. I shared it, shared it this morning. How stuck we get. And we're not stuck because of an action we took. We're stuck because we believe something about ourselves that Satan whispered to us that is untrue, but we believed it in the moment. We gave him the authority to speak that over us, and we're stuck because that which we heard back there is still dominating our lives now. 20 years, 30 years, 40 years later, what Satan said back then is still dominating our lives now. That's hard for people to grasp, to sit with a person in their 50s and 60s and for them to realize for the first time that the action of their life and the, and the difficulty that they're facing as a 50-year-old woman, happened when she was five years old. Why would God want to take her back there? Because that's where the brokenness happened. That's where she got stuck. In ministry, as much as, again, we like to say we're not encumbered by that past. We've been set free from that past. In this ministry, in deliverance, you have to go back to that place where you got stuck. Right, Jaron? Yeah, you got to go back where you got stuck. 
I'm looking at him because he's one of the more recent ones. Steve, is that right? You got to go back where you got stuck. There will be no freedom without that, without, without that reality. So understand, where is McKenzie's healing journey actually beginning? It's beginning back where, where he got stuck. Not at the shack. Where did he get stuck? In childhood. He got stuck in childhood. He got stuck. He got stuck when he was tied to that tree and being beat by his dad, quoting scripture. Got stuck back there. When he says, why did you bring me back here? We, get, we have a tendency to think the shack. But what has McKenzie already said? What does he say within this, with, that we heard him say a while ago? Why weren't you there when I needed you? What's he referring to? Childhood. He's talking about his childhood. So un, under this particular bullet, why don't you bring me back here? Though this has been mentioned in previous notes, we received increased clarity in Papa's response. We are stuck. Many are stuck because of a particular moment in the past that had such a powerful and tragic effect that we cannot move beyond it. This is not just because something happened to us. We have to get this clear. It's not because something just happened to us. It is because in that hurtful moment, Satan gave us a false identity that establishes permanence to our brokenness. A lot of us as children had things happen to us. I can remember going to, to Lubbock with, with a, a, a young lady in the sixth grade. And we went to the Methodist church in Lubbock to hear the Messiah. It never dawned on me that we would go out to eat after the concert. And so on the way over, somebody says, where are we going to eat after we, after we get out? And, and somebody gives the answer to this restaurant, and I'm thinking, my pockets are really empty. And I can remember that entire evening wondering, how do I order when I don't have any money? What do I do? I want to tell you, that, had, that happened to me. That wasn't the moment when the identity, but that happened to me. And I remember it like it's yesterday. And so when our kids got in college and even in high school, if we invited kids to go, I would tell them right up front, it's on me. I would want to remove the possibility that they would have that moment of humiliation in question. I can even remember back in, like in the second grade, I left a couple of books in the side, library books in the side drawer, or the, the tray of the, of the desk and almost ruined a Christmas vacation because I'm thinking, how am I going to pay for those books? I know they're not going to be there when I get back. Somebody will take those books and I'll have to pay the library, no telling how much they cost. See, that happened to me. We can all remember those things that happened to us. This is a different moment. This is when what happened to us broke our hearts so badly that when Satan whispered, well, it's because you're weak, it's because you're poor, it's because you're this or because you're dumb, whatever it happened to be, the humiliation of the moment caused us to believe it. So we're not ministering against those things that happened to us. Those things are so, that lust is so long, never get to the end of that list. We're ministering to the identity. 
that created permanence to the brokenness. What would likely be Max Fault's identity at this time? Some of you that were at church this morning, you had a head start on this one. What would his identity likely be at this point? Think back to childhood. What would have Satan whispered to him? And it's like such a bizarre thought. What would have God, what would Satan have whispered to Mackenzie in that moment in childhood when he killed his father? It's your fault, but we have to change this just a little. Satan is always going to speak it in a different term. It must be preceded with the, with the verb are, A-R-E. Because that's how he gets it to an identity. So what would he say? Yeah, it's your fault. That's the truth. How would Satan say it to create the identity? You are to blame. You're to blame. So when that veil drops over Mackenzie's face at that point, you're to blame. You're to blame for your father's death. What do you think life looked like for Mackenzie after that point? Why was he so poorly set up for what happened to his daughter? Because what was he absolutely, what was the absolute thing he was going to think? Yeah, I'm to blame. I wonder how many moments, thinking about his marriage, thinking about other kids, thinking about the brokenness here and the situations here, I wonder how many moments in this lifetime where, where Mackenzie had owned something, thinking, I am to blame. See, that's identity. I am, I am, I am, I am to blame. I am poor. I am weak. I am worthless. And how that saturates. So we understand where Mackenzie's journey of healing really, really began. It's from the notes on, on point D. Again, our conversation must clear up who God is and who he is not. False ideas and conclusions about God as judge, jury, and punisher of his kids must be erased. The Holy Spirit in us will clear this up if we let him speak and let him respond. What needs to change is that the person sitting across from us or maybe our, we ourselves have to recognize he is good and he is love. He will not act outside of those two things. I don't care what our eyes see. I don't care the confusion that my heart might feel. The Father will never act outside of those two things. When Moses wanted to see him, and God's response was, no one has ever seen me. And Moses asked, and he says, I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock. And what, what did God say in that moment? I will let all of my goodness pass before you. What's the nature of God? It's the goodness of God. In John, 1 John chapter 3, it says, as plainly as it can say it, God is 
love. Jesus, when they called him good, he says, there is none good but my Father. So we can wake up each day as we, in ministry or even for ourselves. I can wake up each day and I can plant one foot on a truth that God is good. And I can put my other foot on the truth that God is love. And I should not be moved from that place. There may be many things that hit me. The news, the diagnoses, those things may come. And, and the difficulties may, may strain against this, against this position. But this position cannot be betrayed. This position cannot be left because, because I want, if, if I'm going to move my foot, where am I going to move it? The disciples said this when Jesus asked them after he had been preaching to 5,000 and now he's down to 40 because of some of the things he said in John 6, 7, and 8. They said, you've told us hard things and, they, and the, that group that just had eaten from the loaves and fish walk away. And he turns to his disciples and says, are you going to leave me also? And their answer is, where would we go to find words that are actually life? Where am I going to go if I move these feet? Upon what will I stand if I don't know that God is good and I know that God is love? Where will I go? But I want to tell you, there's not many people who stand there. The conclusions that they have drawn about God they were born out of their own fathers, born out of, of men in their lives, conclusions that they have drawn about who God is and about how variable he is, how he can be moved, how you can upset him and how you can disappoint him and how you can frustrate him. And none of those things are true. Isn't that amazing that I can't do anything to frustrate God? I can't do anything to disappoint God. That's shocking for us because we measure that against, well, you don't know what's going on in my life. You don't know what's going on in my story. Well, I will assure you, God does. And he will not be moved from those two positions because he loves. I love because I, mean, I, I have such a tendency to jump ahead when McKenzie's in the cave and so many things get answered in that scene. I'm looking forward to teaching that piece because it's such a culmination of so many things that we're wondering about now, about how does some of this stuff resolve. Well, I will tell you that we can look here because what Papa is doing with Mackenzie is he's saying, Mackenzie, I love you. And what you don't know yet, you don't trust yet, is that I am good. Let's continue. What's obvious here? Well, it, it, it does, but the, he's, saying, he's saying based on what you had with your dad, based on all that hurt, you, you didn't need a man standing in front of you right now. What it tells us and the beauty of what it tells us is that God knows exactly how to come to you. He knows your story. He knows whether to come in whispering or whether he comes in shouting in glory. He knows how to come to you. Let's, let me just read here what, what the notes that I made. It'll be a little quicker. The great beauty of this moment is that God knows how to come to us uniquely, intimately, personally, powerfully. We make him look one way, sound one way, approach one way. That, however, would seem very strange when one of the greatest evidences of his creation is that he made all of us in his image, all of us are made in his image, 
and according to his purpose, and all of us significantly different. If he wanted to come to us one way, if he wanted to speak in one voice, if he wanted to, you know, for the fact that, that he is, that a, a, a black woman, Papa, is also in, is in the image of God, should not shock us. But what should tell us about the tenderness of who he is is that if I were to go into one of my children and I knew that something had hurt them, let's just, let's just take two girls, Kate and Aaron. And, and Kate comes out of a day when she is tried out for cheerleader and got it and is on top of the world. And Aaron comes home and something has happened in her day that's broken her, her heart. What if I walk in with, with Kate's words and give them to Aaron? Think that would sound odd? For Aaron to hear, way to go, girl. You did it. I'm so proud of you. And Aaron's looking up from a miserable day saying, what in the world are you talking about? Or if I, go, if I use Aaron's words, over here with Kate, and I say, Kate, I'm so sorry that you have had this awful day. As a father, I would never do that. Not intentionally, anyway. I would never go in because the message of a father's heart, the message of a mother's heart, is designed in their heart to be personal to the child they're speaking to. Why would we expect less of God? Why would we think less of him that he would not be able to come to us in the tenderness of a voice, the love that he would show us the, to correct something about himself that we've misunderstood? I will, I will tell you with certainty that he will. And the note that I put here in the bold at the end of E, he knows us and he knows the person sitting before you. We can trust that. He already knows that other person's story. He already knows how to speak to them if I will simply let him use my voice to speak with, use my mouth, use my heart, use my ears to hear with. He, will, he knows very well how to approach them, how to begin to draw them in, not to me, to himself, so that the intimacy begins to be felt and we know, we know, we know that it's personal. Look at your notes. God is not alarmed about where you have gone. You know that? God's not alarmed that you're mad at him. God's not alarmed that you're disappointed. God's not alarmed that you're frustrated, that your questions are huge. God's not alarmed where mentally you've gone. God's not alarmed at where emotionally you've gone. Do you ever know with your kids that there are times when uh, you kind of have to let them go into their own moments, knowing that there will be a moment when they will drift back, they'll come back, and, and, and things will be okay? Well, I tell you that we, we got that from a father who loved us as well. He's not alarmed at where you've gone. I wish right now that 
people could understand and even identify where they've gone. Some into confusion, some into frustration, many into disappointment, many into fear, many deep in thought, many into broken hearts. He's genuinely, genuinely loving in his determination to bring healing and restoration, not for himself, but rather for you, for us, and for others. Closing that great gulf is a much different journey if God finds us willing and ready for his great mercy. It's interesting to do this over the length of time that I've done it and you've done it and others have done it, that there will be some who will come into my office and they just seem, and it's, it's because God's been working on them a long time, their heart's been broken a long time, and, they, and they're kind of at this point of desperation. It's like, please help. And they, they are very, they're very open, they're very ready, they're very willing to receive. There are some who are there because maybe their husband wants them to or their wife wants them to and they're not very eager. But God knows the difference. And he's not bothered by either. He simply understands what you and I need to understand <clears throat> is that he has such a great desire. The bold print there about what we need to discover about God, what we need to portray through the Holy Spirit, God's love will always desire to close any gap between us and him. It doesn't matter what size the gap or what caused it. His great desire in the relationship that he has with us is that that gap be closed. Is it true for you? As a parent and child, you, is, is, there, is there something very innate in us that wants any gap, whether it be a brief one or a big one, that we want that gap closed? Absolutely. The Holy Spirit will not leave the gap unattended. One of the things that I have to express often is that deliverance is never the end of a story. It's just the beginning of one. When someone is delivered, when that false identity is gone, that's not the end of a story. That's the beginning of a relationship that they've never had before. Have they, have they had a relationship with God? Yes, many have. But they've never had a relationship like this because that veil that was over their face not only affected their view of others around them, it affected their view of God. It will, it will always have that effect. So when that veil is lifted and we now can have the, have the, the mind of Christ, the eyes that God wants us to, to share with us so that we can actually see him correctly, I can assure you that, that, that it will take the relationship. That brings the great healing. The deliverance, the repentance, the salvation is always a beginning. But it's never the end. That's why we commit to the best we can for those who can do it. We commit to walk with people for so long, up to a year, two years. I've got people that I've been walking with for longer than four years. Not every week every, in, anymore, not even every month anymore, but just frequently as they need it, we walk with them because it's about a journey and a relationship and the building of that relationship, not with me, but with, but with God. <clears throat> These are truly profound statements that represent so much about who our Father truly is. The first one, he desires always to take away that which hurts us. A little hard for us to grasp at times. A little hard for us to believe that at times. 
But I will tell you that the Father's heart is always about his plan first. He has purpose in things that we don't always understand. But, it, but in that purpose, his love for us is truly as a father. He grows us, he matures us, he strengthens us, he builds hope, he builds love in ways that we often don't understand. But he has a desire to take away those things that hurt. Many answers to deep and profound problems and issues are, not, are, are about improving actions, attitudes and behaviors, but will not sustain any enduring change. This is the reason why I, I, I support people going to different type of rehab situations. I have just never found them to be enduring and, and long-lasting. And it's because most of those answers are trying to improve someone's actions, improve someone's attitudes, and improve someone's behavior, and never take them back to the source of the problem or where they got stuck. The third one is the root of healing is identity. And the false identity that Satan gave at the moment of our great hurt is devastating our relationship with God. The wound is growing inside you, and between us is Papa's amazing truth. We think that the wound is only growing inside us. What God knows is that there's a wound, an emotional wound growing inside you. It's creating distance between you and him. We don't intend for it to happen, but, we'll, but we will discover that it, that it has, that there's now distance. And he has a great desire to heal that which is broken inside us, that creates that distance. What I wrote in bold there is that he desires healing. The next word that's up there that McKenzie's going to ask is he asked this word relationship. What do you think at this point, based on what you've seen, is in McKenzie's mind, in his heart, when he says that, when he asks that <laughs> makes a statement as a question. Relationship. What do you think he's thinking? There is no relationship. If there was, how well has it worked? Not very, because what's the next accusation? Where were you? You're talking about relationship? I was in need. My daughter was in need. Your son was in need. What are you talking about relationship? Because at this point, McKenzie doesn't even know or believe or have any confidence that God even has a desire for a relationship with him. So there's many profound things in this, in this question of relationship. So many statements in the, in the next few seconds of the movie will reveal a very common and predictable indictment that most of us have against God. So listen for those as Mac confronts Papa. The conclusion, because of the indictment, and I wish this weren't true, but there are many churches with many empty seats tonight because of this indictment against God. There's a lot. 
who are asking this very same question. Jay mentioned it this morning, how many people in the neighborhoods where we live are holding this indictment against God? It generally ends with this kind of a conclusion. Why didn't you do what I wanted you to do and what I already knew was best? Why didn't you do what I wanted you to do? Why would that have been so hard? Or perhaps, why did you fail me? As we've said many times, we often love a God whom we do not trust. It's a powerful statement. We love God. We just don't really trust him very much. Papa's answer to the indictment is straightforward and filled with truth. I never left her. We should be very prepared, made ready by his spirit to answer this accusation. This is the tough one. Why? And they're stern in their question. Why did God let? Why did God not let? Why did God fail? Why was God not there? Why didn't he move? Why didn't he step in? The indictment is hard. And because it has not been answered well, there are empty seats in churches everywhere because we were ill-prepared for that question. Pastors, teachers, friends, ill-prepared to answer that question. We better get good at it. We better figure it out. As I, I have heard in, in I, I don't know how many situations, it was very strange that I keep hearing this phrase by pastors and teachers and friends consistently over the last couple of weeks. I'm amazed at the great falling away. This great testimony that I don't, it doesn't seem to matter what we do in church, we can't keep people coming. A great falling away. We better be able to answer this question. There will be a great deal revealed in, in other upcoming lessons, especially the one in the cave answers this. And then the scene with Mackenzie at Papa with the table right after the cave, when this really gets answered very well, but I'm going to include it here just briefly. We must recognize early that God is in charge, but not in control. We have to teach that. We have to know it well, that God is in charge, but he's not in control. It's not just because of tragedy. It's because of free will. It's because of the importance of obedience. It's because he actually gave his children, Adam and Eve, a true choice. This wasn't pretense. He actually gave them free will for a purpose. He gave them the ability to choose. We often say he gave us the ability to choose because there is no love without choice. As true as that is, the real truth is there is no justice without choice. It wasn't love he was establishing with choice. It was justice that he's establishing with choice. We, we have a God who is in charge but a God who's not in control. And I tell you often, and because I, and I hear it, 
I hear it from the pulpit where you can, there's great comfort because God is in control. I want to tell you that's only comforting to a marginal group of people. Because when they have faced great tragedy, knowing that God was in control almost makes him the bully on the block. And to be able to teach profoundly, uniquely, distinctly of, of a God who is in charge, but the God who is not in control, when they hear that for the first time, especially if the Holy Spirit brings the weight of that to somebody, they will for the first time understand that it was not God's will. I had a situation one time in my office where I was encouraged to follow up with this family, this parents that had lost their child and they were in my office. And I, and I, I approached this conversation gently. This is not easy to process. I mean, they had, they had lost their child to cancer. And it's like, it was just, why didn't God, why didn't God, why didn't God, why didn't God? And I finally, not in frustration, but in freedom, I said, do, do you think that the two packs of cigarettes a day had anything to do with this? And the light came on. Maybe it wasn't God. It was a choice that we have the freedom to make. Because he's a God who's in charge, he will take any mess we've made. He will take any broken heart. He will take anything because we will hear later when they're at the table, when, when Papa finally says to Mackenzie, do you understand that I can do great good in the midst of great tragedy, but it doesn't mean that I caused the tragedy? This is that moment. This is that change in conceptually who God is because when we keep saying from the pulpit, well, God, you can be great comfort because God is, God is in control. That's not comforting to many. I think I shared with y'all one time, we were, Jan and I were listening to a preacher thanking God, as he rightfully should, that this tornado had missed his daughter's house. But he goes on to say how it had destroyed the home's down the street. Like, hmm, that's, that is such an odd thing. Because your words of, of great comfort over your family should also, those same words should bring, should bring great comfort to those who experience such great loss. If the words aren't good for each person down that block, don't say them because there's, there's something untrue in it. Yeah, I'm glad for your children. But I'm also glad for, for what the provision God has for not only those, but for each one down the block. The healing, the salvation, the restoration, the friendships, all the, all the provisions. So Papa's answer again to that indictment was straightforward. I never left her. I never left her. This is one of those reasons why the shack did a work on me. It's like every phrase got anointed by the Holy Spirit because of the profundity that are in those statements. We should, back under the, the Roman numeral, I mean the letter I, we should be very prepared, made ready by, to answer this accusation, as I said. What we, should, what we should be able to leave somebody with from that, he will never leave you 
or forsake you. We either believe that or we don't. He was in those moments of tragedy or he wasn't. Then this, this, this quote, son, when you, all you see is the pain, you lose sight of me. We begin here, wrong, wrong word here, we begin here to recognize and use in ministry the very present reality that pain has created the lenses through which most of us see God, how we see others and the situations of our lives. Pain has created the lens by which we see God. If Jesus said often that you could look at him and see the Father, we too, equipped as he was equipped, should also be able to live that message as well. Even if, if not by words, our life should humbly encourage others to look at us and see God. The transition in somebody's mind about who God is, again, originates in your voice. That's amazing, but it's true. For someone, as I shared with you this morning, and there's been so many of these, when they come in and they're describing the drug addiction or they're describing, describing the sexual addictions that they have, Man, it's so easy because they've already said in churches and they've already been judged. They've already said in small groups and told, tried, to, tried to tell their story and the judgment came so quickly. The harshness came so quickly. The ugliness came so quickly that they, they just don't even go back. They can't go back. And for them to come in and for them to tell me the hardest thing they need to tell me, the most awful thing they've done, and it never changed the look on my face. It never changes the urgency in my voice. It never changes anything about me. It's always shocking to them. But I want them to see. I want them to know. Not who I am. I want that to be, become the beginning, the beginning of an understanding of who God is. There's such tenderness in these moments. There's such tenderness in this in Papa's voice. Well, Papa's voice isn't the one they're going to hear. It only works in this movie. Whose voice are they going to hear? Ours. It's our voice. And it's okay if, it's, if there's laughter in it and joy in it and peace in it and goodness in it. We begin again here to recognize that. If Jesus said often that you could look at him, then we ought to be able to say, look at us. But listen to this, what he says. This, there's so much power in this phrase. What's the key word in that phrase? That. Exactly it. Unless you can change that. Unless you can reverse what happened to me in that moment, I will never be free. What's the, what's the, the misunderstanding here on McKenzie's part? God won't change that, so what's he going to change? Him. See, this is still a misunderstanding because we go to God saying, I want you to reverse what you just did. I, it hurt me. I, I, I don't want it. I, want it. I would love for it to be reversed. But most, when it's not reversed, 
we'd come to the same conclusion as McKenzie says, unless you can change that, I will never be free. So freedom is contingent for McKenzie here upon that changing. No, freedom is contingent upon you changing. There are those of you sitting here today that have experienced these great tragedies. Ones that we even have a hard time speaking of because they hurt so badly. But I will tell you that we can trust, we can know that these things are true. The last piece, or under K, I have a couple more things. What is McKenzie's great misunderstanding found in that statement? We just mentioned it. It's the word that. <clears throat> Listen to Papa's response. Boy, that's a powerful phrase when, when Papa says, I'm not who you think I am. That's the tragic statement across Christianity. We don't know who he is. We truly don't know who he is. It's so graphically represented here in this story, so graphically represented here from the statement about Santa Claus, supposed to be wearing britches, supposed to have a white beard, supposed to be there, supposed to do things the way I want them done. You left me, Father. All of those misunderstandings and misconceptions. And Papa says, I'm not who you think I am. This is the great summary of this section of the movie. Max healing and the urgency of it is based largely on the correction of that truth. We rarely know who God is because we have removed the revealer of all truth from the church, ministry, counseling, and relationship. It took me a long time in this movie to understand what Papa was talking about when she said you don't understand the mystery. It took several weeks of preaching, and I was into the preaching where, from John chapter 17, where Jesus says in the end of that prayer, Father, I've revealed to them your name. It was there that I recognized, and God showed me that there was never a place in the scripture where Jesus didn't call him Father, except one. Where was that? My God, my God. It took me a while because he doesn't say, Father, why did you betray me? Why did you forsake me? He didn't say that. He said, my God, my God. You see, the, the statement of that says that there's, a, that there's a trinity involved. When he says, my God, it's not speaking specifically of the Father. It's not specifically speaking of the Son. It's not specifically speaking of the Holy Spirit. It's speaking of the unity of each. What's happening here when Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin? Who left? Who wasn't present in that moment? The father was there. He had the hole in his arm, remember? Showed it there. I know it's a movie. Wasn't the father. Who left? Who couldn't be inside him? When he became sin, Holy Spirit, the Trinity was broken, you see. The cry out was, my God, my God, something was wrong in this, in this picture. 
because all, every step he had made up to this point, there was this consistent unity between him and the Father and the Holy Spirit, God, all the time, God evident in everything done. Here, something got broken in that trinity. Because when he became sin, not, he didn't take it on as a backpack because if he had done that, the Spirit could have stayed in him. He became sin. It wasn't the Father that would leave. It was the presence of the Holy Spirit that had so indwelt him that he could live without sin. And now something changed. He said, you don't understand the mystery. You'll never, you, you don't understand that what my son chose to do hurt us, great, hurt, hurt us both greatly. You think that should, that, that should change our concept of the Father? That there's not anything that you're experiencing that he doesn't also feel? That the anguish that is in your heart, that, that struggle that is, is there, finds its origin in the Father? I get asked this question a lot. I've been surprised. How do you explain the anger that Jesus had well, I can explain it very easily because that anger that he felt when he was clearing the temple, that anger originated in the Father. The great sadness that Jeremy and Clara mentioned when they had to make the decision about their baby and they were in such conflict in their mind about what to do. And with that reminder of what are you feeling? Sad, unbelievable sadness. Well, where's that sadness originating? It's originating in the Father. It allows us to know that what my mind can't reconcile, to know that the great hurt within me originated in the Father because he's feeling the same thing. I want us to know that about the Father. I want us to know that when the news comes and the diagnoses are heard and all of those things that the Father says, I will not be absent from a moment of that. I never, left, I never left him. I never left Jesus on the cross. I never left you when you were being beaten. I never left, I never left your daughter. So we, it will get us to the point, this eventually ask in the cave, well, why didn't, he, why didn't you do something? And, that, and that, that moment will come. One last question. What is the perspective that Mac demonstrates when he lets go of Papa's hand? Okay, where is Mackenzie right now? Uh, he's, he's in a maybe. He's certainly hearing what he hasn't heard before. He's seeing what he's never seen before. It's creating the maybe. What else? Do what? It's free will. He's, he is, he's recognizing in this moment because at this point, the great sadness in his life, the death of his daughter hasn't been matched yet by the healing that God is speaking of. That's okay. Please understand how okay that is. Because sometimes there's a mountain to climb in people's lives. And we don't climb it all at once. We climb it inch by inch. Mackenzie here wasn't yet convinced that this great hurt and this God that he knew that, that he has all power, you, you, you know everything, you can be everywhere, 
and let, but yet you seem to let the people that you supposedly, supposedly love down. That thought was still playing, that indictment was still playing against the, the promises and the assurance that Papa was giving. Don't be surprised if that happens in front of your face when you're ministering to someone. That what they heard that day may not yet be large enough to, to trigger that freedom that, that God is waiting to give them. What we hope for is that we see hope. Is it somewhere in McKenzie's eyes when he's staring back at Papa? And those eyes, when they, when they chose her to play this part, I don't know what happened. It's kind of like Jim Caviezel playing in, 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 uh, in, that, in that movie, The Passion of the Christ. Man, I don't know how it was all captured, but her eyes are the beckoning of God. There is tenderness in them. There's love in them. There's compassion in them. There's desire in them. And he lets go of her hand. Please don't be discouraged if you're the minister in this moment. When somebody says, I don't really think I need to come back. Love them. Show grace. Show kindness. Show mercy. Love them in that moment. Don't push them. Say, well, if you change your mind, I'm right here. Let me know. I'll come running. Let them know the heart of God in that moment, even when they're turning loose. By your voice, you can assure them that God is not. Thanks for listening to this message. For more resources, visit sundownchurch.com.